Let's get going with tonight's message. It is always an honor to get to uh, bring a message to you guys. Scott got to do it Sunday. I think I hope you all enjoyed that. Sean and I listened to him driving home from Kansas City. I thought it was terrific. Uh, different voices are fun sometimes. So I appreciate you coming to hear mine tonight. So I want to give a little uh, background. I like to explain where some of these things come from in my head. Uh, kind of scary how my head works sometimes. But, uh, you know, I was reading Acts a couple months ago and uh Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So these are the apostles. These are the disciples, then apostles. Uh, They say there are upwards of 70 people in that room. They were told by Jesus to wait there. They were told that he was bringing them a gift. They didn't quite know that it was the Holy Spirit coming upon them yet. It was a pretty confusing time for them. Uh, They'd watched their leader get crucified. They'd watched him rise from the dead. They'd seen him a couple times at this point, kind of come and go, come and go. They really weren't quite sure what was going to happen. Yet, they sat in that room at Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. They sat in that room, and it says they were with one accord. With one accord. And that's the title of tonight's message, in one accord, a community of believers. And that's where that came from. It's that simple passage, that simple phrase in this one verse with one accord because it just, uh, I can't really explain it. In my case, it bounced around my head for the last two months. I just, uh, it just stuck with me with one accord, with one accord, with one accord because I don't know that we're always in one accord in our country right now, in our city, in our church, whatever. I don't know that people are always in one accord. And here you had all these believers that went through just the most, the craziest, the worst and the greatest thing that has ever been witnessed by humans, and yet they were all in one accord. They had all come together. And it bounced around my head, and evidently it did for the writer of Acts because he says the exact phrase six more times in that book. And then I just start thinking about what does that mean, you know, can we be in one accord? You know, clearly they're in agreement. Can we be in one accord? Can we agree? Can we all row the same direction? Can we, uh, what power would that be? If everybody in our church or any community you're in, if if everybody in our town could for even a short time be of one accord, to everybody has the same goal. That doesn't mean they don't think differently. It really doesn't. This this is not a political argument that if everybody agreed. Because, no, there can be different viewpoints. But if the goal was the same and it wasn't a selfish goal, can you imagine that if we were all in one accord? So... This is a deeper look in how my head works because then I ask myself the question, well, who is we? What does that even mean? Like, we means I'm a part of it. But we who? Well, that's when I started talking about the community or thinking about the community or trying to see what the Bible says about community. Because we, that's the best word for it, it's a community. And there's different types of a community. Like, we as a church, Living Word Fellowship, we're a community, right? You know, we're a community of like-minded people, of believers. Uh, I could say that I'm a part of the Christian community in general because we have that shared trait. We have a shared, a shared belief system, a shared religion. Uh, community can be, I'll, not all of you live in Knoxville, but it could be Knoxville. You know, we have, we have boundaries around our town and it forms a community. And in all of those cases, they're all the correct answer. And what we're going to be talking about tonight, I think actually 
flows with all of those. Regardless of what type of community we're talking about, if we could simply come together and follow some lessons that the Bible tells us, we are all better people because of it. Now, fortunately, the Bible's a really big book, and God's a really smart guy. So there are lessons throughout it on pretty much any topic you want to come up with. So it was easy to find one. Tonight, what I'm going to do is really just walk through a singular Bible story with all of you. Uh, one of my favorite books, one of my favorite Bible characters, one of my favorite historical figures in the Bible. We're going to be talking through Nehemiah and what that means for a community. So there are things, Nehemiah was written about 500 B.C. So this is one of the last historical books of the Bible, as they're called. He tells an actual historical story of something that happened with king's names and locations and places. It's a history book. It was written 500 B.C., so 2,500 years ago from now. Yet, as everything that comes in scriptures, the examples and the lessons are still pertinent to us today. Because believe it or not, the stupid stuff that they did, we do too. And the lessons they learned, we can learn too. So, let's start with a little background on Nehemiah. Uh, who he is, why he is, where he is. Nehemiah is a Hebrew. Uh, he is part of the Jewish faith. He's part of the Jewish people, part of God's chosen people. But Nehemiah was actually, at this time, he was a servant. He was a slave. Because at this time, God's chosen people, the people that he delivered, the people that he created, the people that he did everything possible for, they repeatedly messed up, right? Well, at this time, Jerusalem, Judah as a whole had been sacked. It had been taken over. And so many of them were, they, they describe it as they were carried away to foreign lands. Jeremiah, or Nehemiah, I'm sorry, Nehemiah lived in Persia, as we would call today Persia. But Nehemiah had a really unique case. He didn't just live there as a normal slave. He was the king's cupbearer. The king's cupbearer. So Nehemiah lived in a palace. Nehemiah had the favor of the king. Nehemiah is the guy that would bring the king his drinks. Uh, in that setting, he probably would taste test it first to make sure it's not poison. You know, if somebody's trying to kill me, they're going to kill my slave first. So Nehemiah had the king's ear. Nehemiah had a for being a slave, for being a servant, he had a pretty swank job. You know, he had a pretty good setup where he was. That was his background. And it's in that setting that we see the story start. And I'm going to go to Nehemiah chapter 1 and read the first, I'll read the first four verses to get started here. And he says, and it came to pass, and I'm going to butcher these names because I cannot pronounce most of the stuff they have on here. And it came to pass in the month of Shizlev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. Let me stop there for a second. So here he is living in a king's palace. And because of that, when traveling groups come through, when dignitaries come through, as people pass through and they want to pay tribute to the king, or just his ability to travel in the community, here is a group that came from his people. You know, These are fellow Jews from Judah that came through, and right away his thought is, man, I want to find out what's going on. And we're going to get deeper into this later, but it's somewhat interesting because he never lived there. He was born in captivity. His parents had been carried away. 
yet he still considers himself part of the Jewish community, part of the Judah community, part of the Jerusalem community. So he asks him, he says, I need to know what's going on. What's going on back there? So he asked him, like, how are the people that escaped? How are the people that carried away? What's it like in the town right now? And in verse 3, he says, And they said to me, the survivors, which is already kind of a rough word. Survivor means something bad happened. The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these things, this is Nehemiah talking, that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before God of heaven. So when he asks for an update, when he asks his his brethren who he didn't even know what's going on, they don't have much good to say. They say, well, this town is in great distress. It is in turmoil. The walls have been torn down. All the cities had giant walls to protect them. The gates have been burned down. The people that are there are distressed. So he didn't get a real good report. And he sat down and he wept. This is the first lesson. If you're a note taker, we're going to have three or four lessons here. Lesson one that comes from Nehemiah about community is you have to have a passion for your community. You have to care. Here's someone who views this as his community, and when he hears something goes bad, his first response, first of all, he cares about enough to ask, a place he's never been. He refers to it in the book, if you read the whole thing, as the home of my father's tombs. These are where my people are buried. These are where my people are from. And he has such a passion about it that he sits down and weeps just when he hears about it, a place he's never even been. You know, we all know people that, I don't know, I'll, I'll, I'll pick Knoxville, this community I live in, that have zero passion for it. You know what I mean? They, they, they don't care. It's like, well, this happened. Eh. Hey, something good's happening. Eh. Something bad happened. Eh. You know, then we know the people that actually have a passion for it. Who do you think gets more done? You know, you have to care. I've spent my life around athletics, and a team is kind of a little community. And it, it's hard to teach this, but you get groups that care. They are passionate about their team. They're passionate about their teammates. They're passionate about their success. They're passionate when something goes wrong. They're passionate when something goes right. And to have a successful community, to, have, to come together with one accord, as this lesson is, lesson one is, you have to have a passion. You have to care. If you're a member of this church, you should care about it. It should grieve you when something goes wrong. It should be a celebration when something goes right. When some of our people are hurting, it should grieve you. How can we help? We need to be passionate about the community that we are part of. And again, I find that so interesting that he never even lived there and he could carry that passion. And sometimes we struggle to carry that passion with someone we see every day. So that's the lesson. Let's have a passion. So let's keep reading to get to the next lesson that he's going to show us. I'll pick up in verse 5. We're still in chapter 1. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants. He's passionate for these people. And confess my sins to the children of Israel, which have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. And this is what he's explaining. He's having a conversation with God here. 
because it, let me read the next part. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinance which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. That last song we sang, God always keeps his promises. God told them exactly what would happen if they turned from him, and he scattered them around the nation. The very land that he established, the very land that he designated for them, the very people that he freed from bondage, the very people that he gave every opportunity, when they abandoned him, when they turned to him, when they sinned against him, unfortunately, God did what he said he was going to do, and he scattered them. The walls came down, they burned the gates, and they were wrecked. Nehemiah knows that. So Nehemiah is having this conversation, but now he's going to turn it. In verse 9, he says, but if you return to me, this is what God said. Nehemiah is reminding God because God needs reminded evidently. And if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So God said, I will scatter you if you don't listen to me. But if you return to me, God's a forgiving God. If you repent, if you come back, I will put you right back in the place that I wanted you to begin with. He's talking about restoring Jerusalem here. So this conversation that Nehemiah has with God is the second lesson tonight. And it is by far the most important. So if you forget everything else I said, remember this part, okay? The lesson is, you have to have God present in your community. All communities. God has to be there. It's the most important step. I'm going to talk about civic communities a little bit here. Obviously, I, I'm kind of skipping a church community because if I have to sit in church and tell a church that God needs to be in your church, I think we've, we need to start over and I'll have a different message. Okay. So I'm going to talk about civic communities. I'm going to talk about a civic community. I'm going to talk about Knoxville. I'm going to talk about Marion County. I'm going to talk about Melcher. I'm going to talk about the state of Iowa. God has to be in the community or the community will fail. It won't last. It will never make it. And we have 4,000 years of history in the Bible to show that to us and history that's happened in the last 2,000 years that can show that to us. If God gets removed, it will not last. The enemy is always attacking Christianity. Always. He's always attack, attacking faith. He wants to remove any faith from the federal government, from the state government, from school boards, from cities, from counties. And that's been going on for quite some time now. This is not really a new development. We're going to talk about this for a minute. Because we can argue about whether or not what should be done with that. We can have arguments. I love history. I'll be happy to argue with you after service about like what the founding fathers wanted. Okay, what, what did they mean? Things like the separation of church and state, which most of you probably know is not in the Constitution. That phrase is not. It came out in a court case 200 years ago, 150 years ago. So we can have those arguments all we want. You can get on Facebook. You can share it. You know, when something bad happens, I always see the things get shared. Like, well, why are you surprised 
schools are messed up. You pulled God out of the schools. You know, you, you can see all those things. You can share the memes. And I don't mind if you do that. That's fine. But listen to me. Pay attention to this. Nobody, no government, no school board, no congressman, no policymaker, no king, no legislature, no senator can remove God from any of those locations. It is impossible for them to do that. They cannot do that. The only person, you get ready, the only person, the only people that can remove God from these settings is you, is Christians. You're the only ones with the power to remove him from these places. Because anywhere that you are, Jesus is present. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. My flesh died and Christ lives in me. So when I'm told that, well, they took God out of the schools, like, no, they didn't. I'm just a part-timer, but I actually work for the school. And God's with me. And nobody has kicked me out yet. My daughter's a Christian. She's there every day. Brandy works at the school every day. She's a Christian. God is still in the schools. I don't care if you don't like policies that school boards have made. God is still there because you are still there. And if we continue to say that he's not there, that's only if you removed yourselves. Because the light of Jesus should shine through you in all of these institutions. So in our civic communities, I'm not talking the church community because he's obviously here, okay? That, you guys showed up on a Wednesday night when you could have been doing anything. God is still in all of these places, and Nehemiah included God in his plans. Anything we're going to do, any community we have, it will not work unless we include God in it, which means we have to be a part of that community. We have to be active. We have to do the things. When I heard that he's been removed, that's not true. He's not in the government anymore. It's not true. He's not in the Senate anymore. That's not true. He's not in the courts anymore. It's not true because there's Christians in all of those places. Not everybody's a Christian there, but you get my point. There's enough of us. So if you are concerned about him being removed from these places and God not being a part in our communities the way he should be, get involved. Put yourself in it. Take an active role in the school. Take an active role in our city. Take an active role in the service clubs. Take an active role in our county. Take an active role in these places. I can assure you there are people begging for volunteers on commissions, boards, and everything else. So if you're concerned about God being removed, unremove yourself. I better move on. That topic gets me wound up. So the second lesson was include God in the community. And you do that by including you. Okay? So that rabbit hole gets deep for me. So let's get back on track with the story. So what did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah found out that his people, his community had been sacked, it had been destroyed. Nehemiah sat down and prayed. He was grieved. He was passionate about it. He included God in it right away. What goes next? Well, as I said, Nehemiah is the cupbearer, correct? So he's with the king every day, probably three meals a day and any time the king's thirsty. Well, the king comes to Nehemiah and he says, 
Nehemiah, you know, you've been with me for years, and for the first time ever, you are sad. I have never seen this look on your face. I've never seen this countenance on your face. I have never seen you so depressed. What's going on? Well, Nehemiah tells him. He explains to him about his city. He explains about the men he saw. And the king, who clearly had an affinity for Nehemiah, he liked him. He says, well, what, what, what are you going to do? Nehemiah, at this point, is probably feeling pretty bold because, remember, he's a servant, he's a slave, and he says, well, I want to go back to Jerusalem and I want to rebuild the wall. I want to go back. I want to fix my community. I want to physically go build something that was broken. And the king, who clearly likes him, said, that's great. You can do that. I do need you to give me time. I need you to give me a time. You know, you're not moving back there forever. Let me know when you're going to come back. So now Nehemiah is feeling pretty bold. He gets that approval. He says, I, I need something else, king. You know, I need, I need permission. I need letters from you that let me pass through the other kingdoms to get back there so that I don't get taken captive when I'm there. Done. Final thing, Nehemiah speaks up. He says, well, I also need stuff. You know, I need your permission to go into the forest, to cut trees, to get the clay and sand, however you make mortar 2,500 years ago. I'm going to need stuff from the forest. I'm going to need stuff to do this. And again, the king says, go do it. So the king thought very highly of Nehemiah. So that brings me to lesson three. Because what happened is Nehemiah, he went. He traveled. He took off for Jerusalem on horseback. And this is the third lesson. You have to be willing to do something that might be unpleasant and you don't want to do. Another way I'll word it using this story is Nehemiah left the palace to help his community. You can't ignore the situation he was in. Nehemiah, by definition, probably lived in the greatest house in all of Persia, right? He lived in the king's palace. Nehemiah probably had really nice sheets and a soft bed. He had all the food he could want. He had a pretty cush life. Despite being a servant, he wasn't getting whipped. He was the cupbearer. The guy lived above what common people in Persia or Jerusalem or anywhere in the Middle East could have even imagined. And he walked away from that lifestyle on road rode away on horseback to go look at a destroyed wall in a city that he's probably never seen to rebuild it. I think this is something that uh, we struggle with in America. I I struggle with it. Like, we live pretty good lives here, right? So we get called on to do things to help our community, and the fact is they're not always that fun. I'll use some church examples. Somebody right now is downstairs in the nursery changing a dirty diaper. Now, I'm sure those ladies love babies. I'm sure they love children. I'm sure they feel that they're serving God by doing that. But nobody in the world in their right mind like prefers to change a dirty diaper. I mean, think about that, right? They're doing something that they don't necessarily want to do. Somebody has to empty the trash cans. Somebody has to sweep. Somebody has to do unpleasant jobs. Somebody has to leave their palace to do anything. You know, like, I, I don't know if I'm serving somebody's like, hey, they need help. We're going to go. There's a project this Saturday. Some men are going to go help clean out brush and cut down a tree and do some things down in Seymour. It's a wonderful cause. And we've had several people sign up to do it. 
Well, if you ask me, just take away the cause, would you rather go golfing that day or would you rather go cut brush? Everybody answers golfing. Even those of you that hate golf, it would be more fun than that. Okay? My point is, when you're a part of something, when you want to be of one accord with your group, when you want your community to grow, sometimes you have to do stuff that just it isn't that fun. You understand what I'm saying? Nehemiah set a great example there. He left a palace to go do this. This is where the passion comes back into play. You better be passionate about what you're doing. You better actually care about what you're doing. You better be serving a greater cause than yourself to go do these things because changing diapers is not fun. But somebody has to do it. When you're a part of something, you have to get involved and you have to do that. I've actually I've been on enough different things. We all have in our life that <laughs> you're looking for volunteers Sometimes it seems easy. Oh, we'll get 10 people to do that easy. And when you get one, you realize it wasn't that easy. And I've had people just flat out say, it's like, well, I don't want to do that. Well, nobody wants to do that. That's not the point. It's something that needs done. So lesson number three. Sometimes you've got to step out of your palace to get some things done. So let's continue with the story. When Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem... He's on horseback, and he doesn't tell anybody he's there. He doesn't tell the officials. He doesn't tell the, tell the priests in charge of the temple. He doesn't tell the city officials. But for three days at nighttime, he rides around the city and assesses the wall. He's making a plan. He's trying to look, okay, what am I dealing with? How's this going to work? How are we going to rebuild this thing? How many people is it going to take? What materials are we going to need? And after the third day, he finally meets with uh, some people in charge and explains to them what they're going to do. In Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 16, it says, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. He hadn't told them yet. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So his little pep talk got these people excited, and they said, well, let's rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. So the fourth lesson, which is really the final lesson, but sorry, I'm not done talking. I've got more to say about it. But the fourth lesson is you got to put in the work. Kind of goes with some of the last things I've said, but somebody has to put their shoulder to the work. Somebody has to show up and do it. Somebody has to grab a shovel and do something. And that's where we get to in this story. So if you read chapter 3 in this book, I'm not going to read it because it's almost like a genealogy. It goes through name after name after name after group after group after group of who worked on this wall. And what they did... They kind of acknowledge that this is a daunting task because when the wall was first built, by the way, it took years and years and years. I don't know the exact, it could have been decades. This is a big place that they were walling off. So what they did with this plan is they used a true with one accord community. The community came together with one accord, to use that phrase from Acts, and they took turns building what mattered in front of their place. I said, hey, I live on Robinson Street, so I'm going to build this. I'm going to build 
behind my house in the alley, I'm going to build the wall. And then his neighbor built his wall, and his neighbor built his wall. They go through 53 names and groups. It had to have been thousands of people because this was their entire village and family members, groups. The silversmith built his section of the wall. The goldsmith built his section of the wall. The priests built their sections of the wall. And it describes how far they went out. And when they came together and they were willing to do this, when everybody was willing to come together and do this all together all at once, they built this wall in 52 days. What had taken years or decades before. When a community actually comes together, what can be done is utterly amazing. Church, Christians, towns, nonprofit groups, when everybody actually shows up and rows in the same direction, it is amazing what we can accomplish. But, there's a but. I want to talk about a few things you're going to encounter when you do this. Because as the great philosopher Rocky Balboa said, life ain't all sunshine and rainbows. You have got to be steadfast in what you're doing because these things are going to come at you. Just like they came at the apostles in Acts. You realize that Jesus' 12 apostles, of course, one of them committed suicide the night that he was crucified, but they replaced him. 11 of the 12 were, were killed for spreading the word. Only one apostle, only one disciple, John, lived to an old age and died of natural causes. The rest of them encountered problems, right? They were beaten. They were tortured. They were imprisoned. They were crucified upside down. They were beheaded. They were stoned for the cause. We don't really face that here. We we don't have that level of risk. We just have to change dirty diapers and empty trash. But you're going to encounter some problems as you go through these. And you have to remain steadfast. There's three things you're going to encounter I want to talk about. First is the naysayers and the critics. Nehemiah 2, verse 19, <clears throat> excuse me, says, When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem and Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build but you have no heritage or right to the memorial in Jerusalem. So what's happening here, when, when people from surrounding communities start to hear about what's happening, they don't say, hey, let us come help. They make fun of them. They say that will never work. They did it on Facebook, because that's where that happens. So 2,500 years ago, they logged onto their phones. It was dial-up service. It was way slower then. And they made fun of the fact that there was actually something good going on in their community. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> it's, you're going to have naysayers. You're going to have critics. You're going to have people that say that'll never happen. The number of our arguments I've had with people that said there will never be anything done at the VA grounds. It's just like if I was more vengeful, I would go around to each of those people now and drive them out there and say, let's go see. You know, get on board. Being naysayers against these things doesn't help anything. You're going to encounter them. My lesson for that is simply, you're going to have to ignore them and remain steadfast. Because even in biblical times, this happened. You know, It's just part of it. 
when you're trying to do something positive, there will be people attacking it or saying it's not going to work. The second thing that's going to happen is there's going to be those that don't help. I'm trying to give a lesson here on what would happen if we all came together in one accord. Unfortunately, in the flesh, that's probably impossible. We're probably not going to bat a thousand there. In chapter 3 of Nehemiah, when I said it goes through and it lists 53 different people groups that worked on this, seemingly everybody did. There's only one thing I can find that is very interesting in Nehemiah 3, 5. It says, next to them, because it kept saying next to them, the next group, the next group. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. It's the only people referred to in the city that did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Now, I don't think the focus there is about the nobles. It's about these nobles, the Tekoites the Tekoite nobles, because there's other nobles that did do work. So this is not an attack on a rich versus poor. That's not what this is. But I don't think Nehemiah, and I don't think God has that in the scriptures on accident. I think he's pointing out that, you know, there'll, there'll be somebody that doesn't. There'll be somebody that doesn't. You know, when we need volunteers to do something, there will be some people that just simply won't. But we can't let them wreck the spirit of the whole. You know, we've all heard that 20% of the people do 80% of the work, or it's probably even a bigger percentage of that. Well, is there any way we can flip that? You know, how, how do we get in one accord that 80% do it? Because it would lighten the load, and it would make life glorious for everybody, including those that got involved when they didn't used to be. Because when you do get involved, I don't know anybody that's ever got involved and, and volunteered or helped in a community, a town, a church, whatever it is, and afterwards said, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. That made me feel terrible. You know, it's not just the community that benefits. It's the, it's the donor that benefits from it as well. So we have to watch out for the naysayers. We have to watch out for those that won't help. And the third thing is there will be attacks from the enemy. When we all come together, you get attacked for it. It's almost automatic when a Christian starts to get more in-depth with their faith or tries to do something, go on mission trips, go to Bible college, tries to get more involved. It's almost automatic that the attacks from the enemy come harder. You know, you can walk through this world ignoring God. You, you might even say you're a Christian. You might even go to church every Sunday. But you just, you really don't do anything. You know what I mean? It's just like, it, it's step six in your life. You put five things in front of it. You can walk through this life and sin like we all do and live like that and not care, not promote Jesus, not try to share Jesus. And you might have a great life and never be bothered because the enemy is not going to bother you. He is perfectly happy to let you go through life like that. But as soon as you start doing something to spread the love of Jesus, the enemy knows he has a problem on his hands and he will come at you. And that's the same thing that happened in this story. When you do good things, you're going to get attacked. In chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, And our adversaries said they will neither know nor see anything, 
They got tired of just talking bad about him, and they said, we're going to do something about it. Till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, and they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. What they're saying there is they, they were surrounded. The city was surrounded by enemies that were starting to be irritated that they were building up the wall, that there was a resurgence of Jerusalem, so the enemies surrounded it. So Nehemiah answered that by saying, therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall, meaning the parts that were sort of built up. It wasn't all the way there. So we have safety behind the little bit of the wall. At the openings, and I set people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. In 417, he says at one point, says, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other they held a weapon. So they had a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other so that they could keep working on the wall but continue to fight off the attacks of the enemy that don't want to see a resurgence in this community. Now ours is more, I don't want to say figurative because the devil's real. But our attacks come at us differently, and we need to be armed for it. So as we try to do good in a community, as we try to do good in a church, as we try to grow positive things in an area, in a community, and whatever you want to see grow, the enemy is going to come at you. This is exactly what Paul's speaking of in Ephesians. Very familiar for us in chapter 6, starting in verse 10. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done to all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's our weapon. So as we are doing things and we know the attacks are coming, we need to be armed with these very things that Paul explains. We need to be armed with the word of God. Because we know it's coming. So be prepared for it. It's not easy to be in a community if you're passionate about it. Brian wants to think of what it was. It's a presidential movie. He said, democracy is hard. You know, if, if you truly want freedom, if you truly want a positive community, it's hard. Because all these rights that we love to talk about, with that comes some responsibilities to protect those rights. With that comes a fight on our hands that we have to know that we're doing everything we can to better the community because it's too easy for it to go the other way. It's too easy for people to give up. It's too either easy for people to stay in their palace and let things happen. It's difficult to actually be an active member of a community, but it's worth it. It's worth it to see your church survive, to see it thrive. It's worth it to see your town do that. It's worth it to see different communities you're a part of, different groups grow. In the end, it's all worth it. I'm going to wrap this up with a quote from a speech made by Teddy Roosevelt. Some of you are thinking there's no way Joe's getting out of here without some history reference, right? 
called The Man in the Arena. It was part of a speech that Teddy Roosevelt gave. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. These are the people that sit in the cheap seats and are critical of those that are actually doing the work. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at its worst, if he fails, he at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with these cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor no defeat. It's perfectly said that it's hard. It's hard to make some of these happen. The heart is what makes it great. The heart is what makes it worthwhile as our community grows. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged or inspired you to God's best. If you have any questions about today's message, need prayer, or would like to learn more about Living Word Fellowship, please call 641-828-7119 or visit us at lwfknoxville.com.